Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. Wine Talk for today, Wednesday, July 21st, 2010. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. You know, I'll take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me your questions at info at stewthewineguru.com. You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or ask me or my guests any questions you like. I want to say thanks to all the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the internet. If you want to find out more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find the websites, videos, articles, and shows I am currently a part of. Speaking of articles and reviews, I am writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo and the Examiner, so look for those as well. I've written a recent article called LeBron James, South Beach and Wine for the Examiner, and I've put the link in the show page right on my chat room, so you can go in there and check it out. Uh, or you can just go into uh, go on to examiner.com, put in Stu the Wine Guru, and find it there as well, along with the other Examiner articles that I've written and reviews. I've also made a Wine 101 video series that can be viewed on both YouTube or my website, so check those out. You're listening to Stu the Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. I think you already knew that already, right? Yeah. Cheers. Tonight, as always, when I have a guest, I will be changing the format because I want to dedicate the full hour to him. I am completely pumped to get the opportunity to talk with this pioneer of winemaking. He is a successful author of the book, Been Doing So Long, and I don't think there is an accolade or award he has not won in the wine business. He's a marketing and branding genius, and I don't use that term lightly. He's also a legendary California winemaker. He has single-handedly changed the landscape of the wine industry over the years, both on a marketing level and a wine-producing level as well. His wines are as unique as he is and well-known worldwide. The names of some of his wines are Cod del Solo, La Cigar Volant, and Bien Nacido Syrah. These are just some. His name, Randall Graham, and his vineyard is Bonnie Dune. He will be with us shortly. Of course, the number to call in, 1-646-381-4860, or if you're shy and prefer the computer, email me your questions for both Randall and I at info at stewthewineguru.com. As always, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I opened a chat room for all the listeners to go into and chat. You can also ask questions of Randall and myself, and I will check into the chat room live periodically during the show to get answers for you.
Remember, if you have questions, I have answers. So call me at one six four six three eight one four eight six zero, or email me at info at stewthewineguru.com or get into the chat room as I mentioned and voice your opinion. So let me make sure that everyone listening knows Randall's website and can go there for more information about his great wines. To learn more about Randall, go to www.bonniedunevineyard.com and find out where you can buy his wines locally in your town or buy them directly from Bonnie Dune. That's the beauty of the Internet. So, without further wait, let's bring on my guest for the night, Randall Graham of Bonnie Dune Vineyards. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. It's Randall. How are you doing, Mr. You Just there, fine. Clay? Oh, fantastic. I've got him yes, on the line. You do, indeed. Be careful what you, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> See, but I wish for a lot of things, though. I, you know, you're right. I, do, I should learn that adage. First of all, I want to say, Randall, I want to start by thanking you for being on my show and discussing your great with wines with us. It's an honor to have you here tonight. Oh, thank you very much. Now, I have to say I have almost a million questions for you, so I have extended the hour that we have to about eight weeks. Is that okay? Sure. Go for it. Okay, great. Totally good. Totally go for it. So seriously, let, let me start off with this question. Can you remember the first wine you ever tasted that made an impact on you? Hmm. Well, you know, there's like, you know, there are degrees of impact. Um uh, uh, like meteors, you know, there's ones that go in like three feet and ones that go in like two miles. Um, uh, I don't know about the really very first one, but um, the first, one of the, the great wine, when I first had a, my first great, great wine, I think that made a, a big impact. And I think the wine that sort of consistently made the biggest impact on me was, a, <clears throat> of all things, uh, a Cheval Blanc, 1964. I was really sure, fortunate. Absolutely. <clears throat> this was in 1975 or 76, and uh, I was working in a wine shop at the time, and somehow, for some reason, I was divinely gifted to uh, be able to taste this wine kind of over and over and over and over again. Uh, I know that sounds really, really uh, rigorous, but... Um, I was going to say, wine... you would have to be, to be able to do that, because that's, that's an incredible, incredible feat. Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing. This this wine was so darn great, and it just it kind of was like a magic lantern, and it just it just blew me away. And every time I drank it, it blew me away. And um, I mean, this was kind of the Venice equivalent of what I imagine crack cocaine to be like on some <laughs> level, but but in a more sublime kind of way, of course. Right. So I, I, I wanted to tell you first and foremost that our my phone lines are lighting up here. Um, would you mind taking a, a phone call right before we get into the rest sure. of it? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. So let's see. I'm going to go here first. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, caller. Uh, we let's see. Where are you calling from? What is your name? Are you there, caller? We'll try this one again. Paul, are you, are you there? Uh, okay. Um, you have another chance here to ask Randall a question. Are you there, caller? I've got a caller, it looks like, from a 202 area code. You there, caller? I guess not. Okay, sorry about that. We'll go, go to someone else here. Hi, caller. What is your name and where are you calling from? Hello, Stu. This is Ada calling from Italy. Ada, ciao, come stai? Hi. Bene, come stai? Bene, 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 bene. Good. I know you... Handle tonight. Oh, yes. Sorry, maybe you couldn't hear before. I was here online from Italy (laughs) waiting for you. Well, actually, oh, I have a question for Mr. Graham. Hello, Mr. Graham, how are you? Just very well, Ada. Thank you very much. Great. Great. Well, actually, I I would like to know something about your vision about marketing and making wines. Yeah. And my question is, uh, oh, what was your vision about marketing wines 20 years ago and what has changed today? Well, and everything has everything is your new frontier. Yes. Sorry. Thank you so much. Uh everything has yeah. changed. Um 
when I started, of course, I was more insecure about what I understood and what I knew and what I thought I could accomplish. And so I think I really overcompensated in marketing. I, I sort of pulled out all the stops and, and did everything I could to persuade people to, to try the wines, to enjoy the wines. And I think I tried too hard. I think I just tried too hard. And um, I think very honestly, it, is, it has um, not been entirely positive. I mean, obviously I'm well known, but I think Unfortunately, if I were to die anytime soon, they would say something like, what a great marketer he was. And this would not be satisfactory. Even though I'm dead, it would still not be satisfactory. So I think I, I'm really, at this point, um, I think of myself as a reformed marketer. In other words, I, I want the wine to be as more substantive than the than than all of the marketing that attends it. I want the wine to, to really speak for itself. So I'm, I'm really trying to be very focused on the quality of the wine and really kind of approach, really try to focus my efforts on wine production and grape growing more than in wine marketing, if you will. And producing wines that really make a difference, that really are distinctive, that really are not just distinctively marketed, but are truly distinctive. I see. So maybe I guess because people before weren't I mean, that ready to understand. So in this sense, you are a visionary, a vision, visionary, how, how do you say in English? Um, uh, so uh, do you think that people today will be more like ready to... Uh, to I, I hope so. I, 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 you know, I think that honestly, Ada, Ada, I, don't, I don't think that I was ready. I don't think that I was ready ah. to really... Um, attempt to do something very original. Um, you know, as I've said, I've written at least, that making an, a distinctive wine in the new world is really enormously fraught with risk and angst. And if you are not completely filled with angst, you're not paying attention. It's, it's not the easiest thing to do. And... Um, because you don't know if you have the right site, you don't know if the site is really a great site, you don't know if you're growing the right grapes on the site, if you're growing them the right way. There's just so many variables, and you could easily go wrong in many, in so many ways. There's more ways to make mistakes than there is to do it to do it well. So you should be very anxious about it. Um, yeah. But I, I think at this point I have more confidence and more um, belief in myself. And you know what? At a certain point, you just sort of have to try it and see what happens. And um, sure. I'm, I'm ready to do that. Yes, I understand and agree with you. And if I can, there is another question for you. Sure. Oh, which is your constant and actually which is your variable in your uh, objectives from a few years ago up to today and the future? Yeah. I mean, again, in the, in the past, my, my objective was to try to please people and give them uh, enjoyable wine. And, uh, and now I want to be, uh, I still, of course, want to make wine that people like, but the more important thing is to try to be, to discover terroir and to be, to really kind of be in service to the terroir. And, uh, Rather than try to impose my style, rather than impose my aesthetic, I'm I'm mm -hmm. trying to really express the individuality of the of the site. That's mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to achieve. Which and and it may I may not even understand that. I it may take it, I think it takes a while to understand the expression of terroir and and possibly likely I won't get I won't achieve that in my lifetime and maybe it will take years beyond that to for the for the terroir to really be understood. Yeah. So I just say something I wanted to kind of jump in here on that for one second. Yeah. Stay on the line, Ada. But yeah. I really wanted to say that of the winemakers that I have tasted wines over the years, you probably are the closest in translating the terroir to the taste, if I may coin that phrase. I have to tell you that um, you know it's amazing when we talk about that, the idea of really giving that, um, and I don't want to say it's just minerality. It's not minerality only. I mean, it's really translating everything that goes into producing the wine um, from the terroir 
into the glass, and you are probably one of the um, – I don't think there's anybody that ever comes close to doing it as well as you do. So I just want well, to let you know, – That's right. That's very kind, Stu, but I, 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 I really disagree. I really disagree. Really? Uh, I do, in the sense that I think there are very special conditions that have to be met to produce a vent de terroir. Um, and there are not very many people who are doing it, but I think um, there, are very, there are certain conditions that have to be met. And, and mm-hmm. I, I think you know, irrigation or not irrigation or not using irrigation is, is probably one of the conditions having a uh, a very vibrant uh, genetic uh, material in the vineyard, having a, a diverse diverse genetic material in the vineyard, a mass, selection right. massal rather than a than a, um, a selected than a clonal selection. Um, there's just so many and so many factors I think that that really um, sort of illuminate terroir and so many that obscure terroir. So I, right. I I think I produce wines that have maybe elegance or um, an aesthetic and balance, but I I don't think I'm yet in the realm of terroir. I, that's where I want to go, but it's it's aspirational at this point, not not really achieved. I can at least yeah. say for me then I will I will say I mean I, I think I think you're being humble, and I know I know you mean what you're saying, and I'm not I'm certainly not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying at least from the end user, from the con- the enthusiast and the consumer alike. I, I, from what I've noticed and what I've tasted, there are very few people that have come as close as you have. So maybe I'll put it in that that way. Would that be a better way of? Well, you know, yeah. But you know, again, I think uh, you know, so many of my wines, Stu, you know, honestly, are blended wines. You know, we have some some single vineyard wines, but I think you can only really speak of terroir, really, if you're if you're if you're talking about wines that come from a particular estate. So our our best wine, Cigar Volant is a blended wine of, of from different vineyards and you know we try to be true to the vineyards and we try to make the wine in a in a very natural unaffected style um but it's it is a blended wine so at the end of the day it's it's a vin de for, it's, a, it's a wine of effort uh i would say more than a wine of terroir nice okay, wine fair enough very nice wine but oh, okay awesome yeah. i i have a i have a few other calls here that i i want to take for you if i can Ada, I want to thank Great. you for calling yeah. in. That was fantastic. I appreciate it. I know it's 1 o'clock in the morning in Italy. <laughs> yeah. It's late for you, but I, I really, really appreciate that. And that, that's, what's, that's what my, my callers are all about, and they're enthusiastic, and, uh, you know, and nothing stops them. So yes. thank you again. Exactly. Please call in another time uh, and another okay. show as well. And uh, you have Thank a great you very question. much. Uh, thank you, thank Ada. You. Bye, Stu. Bye, Graham. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so let's see what the next call is. Caller, uh, where are you calling from, and what is your name? Hey, Stu? Yes. Hi, it's Kim. Yes. Perfect. Kim from our uh, – I'll just let you know, Randall, we have people in our chat room that are in the chat room and are, are in, you know, participating and interacting with us. And uh, Kim is calling in from the chat room. Thank you, Kim. I really appreciate that. Um, why don't you ask Randall and myself any question you'd like? Yes, thank you so much. First of all, Randall, um, it's a real honor to be able to speak to you uh, seriously because as Stu knows, I was in the, in the wine business for a little while, but um, certainly not doing what you're doing, but I did some sales and some teaching. So it is my passion, and, um, and I do love your wines. <laughs> so oh, thank I you want- very much. Uh, thank you <laughs> for doing what you do. And I wanted to ask you specifically, you know, when I was teaching, uh, I used some of your wines in, in our classes, and we had, like, a lot of young people in the classes. And I just wanted to ask you, in your winemaking process, maybe even more so in the beginning, did you have in mind to attract any certain type of consumer or was it that you just did creatively what you wanted to do and then they came? Because I have to say that through your wines, I have brought a lot of people to wine who kind of maybe were really intimidated by it. 
So um, I think that you play a huge role in that in that market, and also bringing a lot of younger people into even wanting to try wine. So are you? Is that kind of even in, in your awareness? And was it something that you thought about or not? Well, that's a really good question. I, I never really explicitly thought about it, but I did notice. Um, I've, I have thought subsequently about who my my audience really might be and who really appreciates the wines. And let me let me just give um, Sue you and, and your listeners a, another website to go to, and that's the the, the book website bindunsolong dot com. And on that website, in the I, I have a blog, and in in the blog I've I wrote an article about this theory I had about the archetypal Bonnie Dune customer, the, you know, the, the, the true connoisseur of Bonnie Dune wines. And I posited the theory that this, in fact, was – these were, were women. These were not men who, who appreciated the wines, and, um, or mostly, of course. And, and I indicate all these reasons why I think this is the case. But I, I'm now completely convinced that this is the case. Um, I think our wines um, just behave in a very different – way than, than many California wines. And I think the way they behave really seems to be attractive to very sensitive men, mostly in New York, uh, mostly in the village, um, uh, and, and, and young women. And it's, it's really kind of bizarre. But I think, this is, I think this is true. And I think it has to do with the fact that the wines are changing and changeable and they meander and they evolve and they develop and they're not they're subtle and they they don't they're not kind of immediately obvious and um i think they work better for people who are slightly more patient who kind of understand that wine unfolds in time um i think those are and i think it's a, it's a very it's very it's a very unexpected um Discovery for me, and I think I think this truly is the case. So, so, so there. There you go. Oh, by the way, I put in uh, your been doing so long uh, website the link in my chat room. So anyone in the chat room, anyone that's watching or listening, can uh, can go directly to it and uh, get some more information on that. I uh, I want to say, Kim, thank you. I appreciate it as always. Uh, your participation both in my chat room and in your calls, it's fantastic. And uh, please keep it up. And, um, yeah, you, and of course, call again anytime. Yes, and you know I'll be back in the chat room listening, so thank you, Stu, and thank you, Randall. Excellent. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again. Bye-bye. I've got another call here for you, so we're going to try this one again. Hold on. Let's see if we can get this one again. All right, let's see. The wonders of modern technology, Randall. Mm-hmm. Caller, where are you calling from, and what is your name? Like I, like always. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. All right, we'll give one more shot, caller. I see a caller from 202, area code. Call you there? I guess not. Okay, so we'll move on. So, more questions for you. So, um, I want to know, you originally started in retail. You had alluded to that. or You talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, and as I did in my first endeavor in the wine business, how did, how did you transition into that end. I know you tried a lot of wines. You were mentioning that earlier on. So how did you make that transition from doing that? I know you had gone to UC Davis and all that. Um, just give my listeners a little bit of a, a history as to making that transition from, let's say, retail and, and in UC Davis into, into the wine business. Right. Well, I was uh, really fortunate. I, I um, worked um, briefly when I finished Davis for uh, Dick's Mothers in Santa Cruz. Uh, oh sure, right. For, for a year, and got uh, sort of my informal training, and then um, my parents were very gracious in helping me um, start uh, a vineyard. We planted a, a small vineyard up in in Bonnie Dune, in the eponymous Bonnie Dune, and then I really mm-hmm. just kind of jumped in, and um, it's probably in retrospect was very rash and 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 foolhardy, but but I I did it and sort of managed to survive. Um, those days were, were, were much more forgiving. The wine business was much more forgiving than it is now. So you actually were allowed to make mistakes and um, and your wines didn't have to be perfect. 
and they didn't have to be within a certain aesthetic um, uh, within certain aesthetic parameters either. I mean, there actually was a diversity of styles back then, which was great. And you started out with Pinot Noir, am I right? I started out with Pinot Noir and made pretty dreadful Pinot Noir from the grapes that I was growing, um, but pretty wonderful Pinot Noir from the grapes I was buying uh, in Oregon. And this, of course, made me acutely aware of the perils of growing your own grapes. As, as important as it was to grow your own grapes, it's also very perilous and you can, you sure. can go wrong. Um, so that I ended up uh, eventually grafting the Pinot Noir over to Syrah and Roussin. And actually, the Roussin wasn't even Roussin, but that's another story altogether. Now, I was going to say, I want to touch upon that. Your choices of grape varietals that you had chosen for the wines, uh, they were kind of unique in the sense that the average American palate were not, uh, they weren't well known to. So I, I wanted to ask how and why you chose some of the varietals that you had chosen? Well, some of it was inspiration and some of it was stupidity. I mean, um, Pinot Noir I, I chose because because I'm a guy and I like doing things that are difficult and challenging and, and getting the, gaining the uh, approbation of uh, my peers and so forth. So I did Pinot because, because I, I wanted to. And that's unfortunately not a great reason for doing things in the wine business. Um, right. And it and it didn't work so so great. Then I moved from, to Rhone varieties, and that actually turned out to be, I think, in retrospect, an inspired choice. Um, and I did it really because I wanted to succeed, and I and, and I and I and I was lucky, and that this was actually a clever thing to have done. And um, and the reason it was clever was is because Rhone varieties really are, if you pick the right site very, very well suited to our Mediterranean climate. And, and it, in retrospect, it's pretty obvious, but at the time, it was not at all obvious. And um, But it worked, and I was able to make a very distinctive wine, and um, that was great. Now, subsequently, I've not, ev not every one of my grape-growing decisions has been particularly brilliant. Um, I ended up buying, buying a vineyard in Soledad and planted... Barbera, Dolcetto, Nebbiolo, and Fresa. Now, um, sure. the Fresa was was brilliant, except nobody wanted to buy Fresa. The Barbera was was so tart it would take the enamel off your teeth. Um, the Dolcetto didn't work very well, uh, and Nebbiolo actually amazingly has worked pretty well, but it but it produces about a ton per acre. But but all of these right. wines are breathtakingly tart, and didn't work very well um, as a blend and turned out to be like four times as expensive as I ever imagined they would be to grow. So the vineyard was a bit of an economic disaster. Um, so not not all of my choices have been totally brilliant in retrospect. Right. And, 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 and I guess you could call it really a learning, the learning curve. Uh, or a slow right. learning curve, if you will. <laughs> okay, yeah. Gradual, gradual uh, ascent in scope. Yes. The, the stone slowly rolling down. <laughs> if, you, if anyone wants a visual, I was just trying to. Help. Yeah. Um, so, so what is the philosophy? Uh, let me let me just take a few people through my listeners through here. Um, you had big house and cardinals in and all that. And so, what was the philosophy behind selling them off? Well, you know, as Dr. Freud tells us, we don't do things for one reason. Um, all of our reasons are all of our decisions are multifactorial and I mean uh, mainly it was the fact that it wasn't it wasn't fun anymore it was crazy risky and it is it, it had got grown to be a very large business that was very perilous but but more importantly deep more deeply um, I had grown very interested in biodynamic farming and also I had always been a, a, a staunch lover of terroir and, and a lover of European wines and and mineral wines, and I just didn't like the wines I was making anymore, and, and nor did I feel I could make really original wines on such a large scale. And um, in honesty, it just was time to scale things back to be able to focus on that which is really important to me and ultimately to make better wines. So something had to give, and that was gotcha. well, that being the, the, big, the big brands. 
So why did you choose the Salinas Valley to grow your grapes? Well, that was kind of stupid in retrospect. Uh, it was because I could. And um, my heart had been slightly broken with the demise of my vineyard in Bonnie Doon. I had a lovely vineyard in Bonnie Doon. Um, I lived on the, at the vineyard. And I was uh, the vineyard had become infested with Pierce's disease, uh, which, which right, okay. largely killed it. And if so, you can explain every, to, to my listeners a little bit about that, just if you would. Just sure. In the in the early '90s uh, in California, there was an outbreak of uh, Pierce's disease, which is actually um, always present in California. It's it's typically associated with uh, riparian areas, you know, near river 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 banks and and streams and things like that. But every 50 years or 100 years, there's there's a spike in uh, in the insect population, the sharpshooter population, which transmits the disease. It's a bacterium that um, essentially clogs up the vascular tissue of the plant. So it's a little bit like Dutch elm disease or, or arterial sclerosis, if you will, in, in, in people. Mm-hmm. So the plant just basically uh, can't translocate water and, and dies of uh, water stress. So okay. um, this thing just sort of occurred in California, and it was a very big deal, and um, and Bonnie Doon was one of the hot spots of uh, Pierce's disease. It, Pierce's is still found, as I said, uh, in, in many areas. You, you find it a lot in the southeast, uh, in your in your part of the world, which... Uh, makes it very difficult to grow vinifera grapes in the in the southeast uh, states. Right, right, exactly. It's true. Yeah. Any, anyway, um, so it seemed like apocalyptic wipeout time, uh, kind of almost biblical in its um, severity and, and dramatic uh, appearance. And uh, therefore, I thought, you know, I just have to sell this this property because I don't think I can grow grapes here anymore. And uh, I may or, I might have been wrong about that because grapes subsequently have been grown in Bonnie Doon, again, uh, successfully. And, and now people feel they can... Con- well, you still can't control Pierce's disease um, in, a, in a very benign, natural way. It's still kind of... A, if, you've, if you've got it, you pretty much have to nuke your vineyard, which is not something I wow. care yeah. to do, but, but that's kind of what, where it's at. So I had another question from the, uh, the uh, chat room here. Um, and uh, actually, Kim's asking it. She's back in the chat room. Question is: um, Do you have a favorite varietal to work with or to blend with? Well, you know, I, I love all my children equally, of course. Um, I don't know. I don't know that Wait, I. I don't know that I have a favorite. A favorite. They're all. They're all great. Currently, uh, we have a new wine out uh, called Contra, which is a Carignan-based. Blend. It's a blend of Carignan, Zinfandel, uh, Mourved, uh, Petit Syrah, Grenache, and Syrah. And I'm going through a slight love affair with Carignan these days. I just think it is such a retro, weird, funky grape, but it's soulful. It's very soulful. It has a, has a wonderful mineral aspect. And, um, Most definitely. The, the vine, it's great. It, it, these are old vines. These are 100-year-old vines. And... Uh, uh, it makes a wonderful blending wine. I don't know about that, it. Is that available right now, Randall? It is. It is available. I think we we're just starting to ship it from California. I don't know if it's uh, all over the. It's not not yet deeply penetrated the arteries of commerce, but it's um, it's it's out there. You just have to look uh, for it. Because I was going to say, I um, you know the the thought to bring those those varietals together. First of all, I guess is the Carignan the. Uh, um, Dominant grape within it. Carignan is the dominant grape, and and this idea is really very old-fashioned. I mean, this this was a very typical blend of a hundred years ago in California, and French. in some sense, uh, you know, in in uh, southern France, it's also kind of a typical a typical blend. They they change it around a little bit. They'll blend Carignan, Grenache, and Syrah, um, you know, without the uh, Petit Syrah. Um, right. Um, but that's it's typical in, in southern France as well. Yeah, in fact, I've, I found um, when I was working in the in the retail end that there were very few uh, solo Carignan grape producers who would you know put out a wine that was just Carignan. It's very difficult to find. It's one of those rare breeds, if you will, 
Um, but if you do get a chance to, to try it as it, by itself, it's actually a very, uh, very nice, uh, unique uh, grape. And uh, taste-wise, it's, it's got some great uh, flavor profile on it as well. With so, a caveat, with a caveat that it be that it comes from old vines. Young, young vine Carignan is not pretty. Young vine Carignan is like no, it's, it's a bit of an, an atrocity. Yeah, but uh, old, yeah. old vine Carignan is fa- is fabulous. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to go through, if I can, a little bit of your portfolio. Um, so the um, the Le Cigar Volant seems to be like a California Chateau de Neuf, right? Um, just tell my Listeners, just a little bit about that wine. Sure. This is our, our flagship wine. Le Cigar Volant, the Flying Cigar, is a um, homage, if you will, to Chateauneuf du Pape, uh, meaning that it has the, 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 the primary uh, blending grapes of Chateauneuf, Grenache, Syrah, Morved, Morved. and Sanso. Um, however, uh, in, in, you know, when I started making the wine back in 1984, which is the first vintage, um, I, I, of course, was a young winemaker. I didn't really know very much about winemaking. I didn't really know much about anything. But so I thought, well, you know, I just really need to make this wine taste like Chateauneuf de Pop and all will be well. And and um, over the years, I found I don't even think I really like Chateauneuf de Pop so much. And um, not that I dislike it. It's just for me, the Chateauneuf is such a big. Uh, such a big wine. It's it's often very tannic. It's often very high in alcohol, and um, you know, coming from Santa Cruz, where we are more in touch with our feelings and you know, with our feminine side and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I really wanted to make a wine that was more elegant and um, you know, sort of you know, in touch with its feelings. So I mean, I, you're I, killing I, me, Randall. I, you're killing me. <laughs> I, oh, I, I love this guy. Great. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a person. I'm a burgundy guy. I, I just something. love it. Tell, tell me, Stu. I have to tell you this. Ready? Okay. Yeah. And I want you to take this the right way. This is a, the ultimate compliment, especially in my eyes. I'm a big Woody Allen fan. I don't know if you are. Are you? Yeah, yeah, completely, of course. Yeah. Okay. I see you to the wine world as the Woody Allen of the wine world. I hope I'm, I'm – I may be the no, first no, person probably ever told it's, you. It's fine. It's totally fine. I, I completely I mean agree. That in the, I mean that in the best – in all the best attributes of, of Woody Allen. I don't mean it in the worst attributes. I mean the best right, attributes. Right. You sort of sort of attracts into young Asian, young Asian females. And, you know, of course. I mean, like, you know, what's no. not to like? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what I was saying. I knew that would happen. I knew you would come back with that one. No, what I – what I meant was, of course, you know, he's a, uh, uh, a luminary of the of the uh, of the film industry in that he's he's pinpoint accurate in his humor uh, and how he gets to his audience and how he translates everything from uh, from the concept to the finished product. I'm just giving you you know my thoughts on it, and I really think I mean there's a parallel to be made there between what you bring to the wine world and what he brought to the film world. So that's just my thing. I just wanted to get it out there because this is what I, I think of and what I think of you. Anyway, <laughs> hang on. Um, so now you can drink anything you want. Yep. And that's a state. Not a question. Um, well, I mean, it's, I mean, within, within certain financial constraints, but yeah, I mean, okay. theoretically at least. So, so what is your all-time Say, I'm sure this got this a million times, but I had to ask this myself. What is your, yeah. You're Randall Graham, right? Yeah, you are. Okay, you know that. Right, theoretically, yes. Okay, so, so you're sitting there. You're either at a restaurant or you're out somewhere, or you're going to go pick up a bottle of wine or some, whatever. What is your bottle of wine? What is it that you go, you know what? I am going to have this. This is the wine I want to drink. What is it? Well, I mean, the, there's the wine that I want to drink and the wine that I can afford to drink. And the wine that I want to drink, of course, is, is Burgundy. I mean, in the wine, I, the, the Burgundy I, I want to drink is Moussigny. Uh That's the wine I want to drink. Um, but that's not what I drink because, you know, nobody can afford this, these kinds of wines. But I drink Burgundy when I can. And when I can't, I try to drink... Um, I, I mean... I, I love Rhone wines. I love Northern Rhone wines, especially. I love Cornas. I think Cornas, Cornas knocks me out. I like wines with life force. I like mineral wines. There's, there's, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, 
you know, there's not necessarily a particular variety that I like, although I, in the land of white wines, I think Riesling is kind of, uh, would be it for me. I've heard you say that, uh, definitely. Yes, Riesling is, cannot be, cannot be excelled. But um, I think there's certain flavor characteristics that I'm, for some reason, become, I've become imprinted on. And uh, for me, for white wines, I like, you know, there's a Riesling from, from Alsace, the Clos-Santune vineyard from Ugel, which I think is, or is it Trimbach? Whatever it is, but it's... Trimbach. Trimbach, Trimbach. Uh, Clos-Santune. For mm-hmm. me, that is the perfect Riesling. That is like the perfect Riesling. If That's you have, it's There's nothing like it. If you have acidity, you have a citrus character, and you have minerals, those for me are like the essential elements of white wine. You, you must have those elements. That's like the archetypal white wine for me. And right red on the wine, money. And, re, and red, you said burgundy? Is there a particular burgundy? Like you said, Moussini? Well, I mean, I think any great burgundy I, I love. I mean, I don't like ones that are overwooded. I like natural wines. And there's certain right. elements of flavor that I get in in red wine. I think in burgundy, there's there's if I get beetroot, for me, that's like the essence of Pinot Noir. If I get this earthy... That is funny. Why? Tell me why. No, that you say that because you know I I I kid you not. I know I don't know how this is going to sound, but that's literally you know when I've explained that to people before, I've said okay, the color should be cranberry. You should see mm-hmm. cranberry. Uh, the characteristic to me of of a good char- a good typical good Pinot Noir is that cranberry color. Okay, mm-hmm. you can find that. Yep. And then kind of that honestly that I I was saying beets. I, that's yeah. literally what I, people thought I was crazy. I, 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 it could not sound more. I know this is going to sound contrived, but it's not at all. And anyone that knows me, I'm sure people will email me in and tell me, "Yeah, you've been saying that for years," and I can't believe that it took. Yeah, no, no, it's <laughs> true. I mean, this is what this is what you need to, for like real Burgundy. I mean, this is like that's for me one of the signifiers that the, this is like really Burgundy, and everything else that's is kind true. of a little bit of a. Uh, deviation, if you will. Um, yes. So, anyways, I like I like that flavor in Burgundy. Well, and, and there's your answer. I know it took a while there. Uh, Kim, we went off, off out here and there, but there's your answer. Okay, so now I've got a, you know a ton of email questions, but I'm going to grab a couple of them here for you. Uh, let's see. First up is from Quentin62 from Nice, France, and it says, "Hi, Stu. I'm enjoying listening to your show tonight, Randall. As a Frenchman." I give you much credit for your Le Cigar Volant. It tastes like a French Chateau de Neuf. Um, do you think the old world French style is better than the new world California style of winemaking? And he says, goes on to say, thanks. I've told all of my friends about your show, Stu. Great job. Bonsoir. Okay. <laughs> attention. Très attention. I mean, okay. you know, I, I'm, I'm an old world guy. I, I can't say one style is better than the other, but... Yeah, one style actually is. I mean, old world wines, many of them are very soulful and they have qualities in them of depth and and life force. And and here's to, uh, here's something that I think is really important for you for your audience to really get if there's one lesson, and that is wines either have life force or they don't. And you know, we can be very new agey and very, you know, about it, but I think there is this this important aspect and that is wines with life force actually don't deteriorate they don't oxidize quickly so you open a, an uh, old world wine and you drink a glass or two or three and you put the cork back in or the screw cap and the wine is good for two days three days four days five days maybe even a week maybe even longer whereas new world wines many of them not all but many if not most the wine is dead the next day. This tells me something about the wine, and uh, I want to I, I want to drink wines that have life force, and I want to produce wines that have life force. And um, I think a lot of this has to do with minerals. I think a lot of this has to do with the way the grapes are grown, how they're grown, uh, if they're irrigated or not irrigated, if the, what the yields are held at. All these things are important. What what, what are the qualities of the soil? And um, so I think. For me, the aesthetic of old world wines is is more compelling to me from a uh, as a, as a consumer. 
I agree a thousand percent, million percent. And oh, uh, that's great information. I want to say, I want everyone out there listening worldwide, that's great information that you should take with you when you're considering your journey which I've always said it's a journey. Uh, you know, you can go your whole life. The beauty of wine, and anyone that's listened to this show has heard me say this over and over again, but it's truly what I believe. The, the beauty of wine is you can go your whole life and never taste the same two wines. And it's the journey of going from the first wine to the last wine you ever sip in your life uh, that is the, the wonderful journey that, that is wine. So having said that, and of course not trying to be prophetic or anything here, um, Let's see, I've got another one from Gigi Grapes from Santiago, Chile. It says, Stu, your show is great tonight. My question for Randall is, what importance does terroir play in, making, in the making of your wines? You have a great show here. Thanks, Gigi. And uh, take it, Randall. Well, I mean, terroir is my obsession. I mean, terroir is really, it's my idée fixe. I mean, this is really what I'm trying to achieve. And... I, I'm I'm trying to be humble in in the aspiration to to achieve it because I think it's it's a little bit um, presumptuous or presumptive to to imagine that one can achieve it in a, in a single lifetime. I have some very crazy ideas or or unusual ideas at least to ha- in how to pursue it, um, and and I'm going to follow it. And, and many of these ideas are very old fashioned. I mean, they're kind of you know how wines were made a hundred years ago, or how grapes were grown at least a hundred years ago. So I think you know dry farming is very important. Um, the kind of trellising uh, and the kind of rootstock that you use is very important. Um, I'm kind of my, I'm planting a vineyard. I'm hoping to plant a vineyard in the next couple of years in uh, in the town of San Juan Batista in California. And the vineyard, uh, if it does goes well should look a lot like a vineyard did a hundred some odd years ago. No wire, no trellising, no drip irrigation, you know, very simple, very old fashioned, very low tech. It's great. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever you yield out of that. I'll be getting that wine. So um, everyone listening, vintage the 2042, no, <laughs> the, the, the 2018 be looking for that because that will be some phenomenal wines. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm way off on the numbers, but, you know, you get the idea. Uh, let's see. I've got another one here from Wine for You from Rome, Italy. And it says, great interview, Randall. What, if any, changes do you see in the importing laws for winemakers from abroad to penetrate the U.S. market? Thank you both. And that's from Wine mm. for You from that's a really That's a really good question. Um, I am not sure that it's a question of changing laws. Um, I think it's really just a question of information. I mean, the real question is, how does a small producer in in Europe find his audience in the U.S.? And a lot of it is is very complicated by the fact that um, the wholesale distribution channels are, are constricting. Again, they kind of have there's kind of like arterial sclerosis of the distribution channels. They're they're shrinking. Right. Uh, there are fewer distributors. Uh, distributors um, are under more pressure from large brands um, to sell more wine or sell the larger brands. And um, you have kind of a, the disappearance of the middle class of distributors, if you will. There's there's basically larger distributors and very small distributors. And um, it's very hard for a, for a producer in, in Europe or or uh, or in South America, wherever, to find to find distribution, um, and I I'm not sure what exactly the answer is, but in the U.S. Um, things work very differently than than selling wine in Europe. Um, the U.S. really responds to people. I think our market we're very um, we want a story. We we're an Im- we're still a relatively immature wine market, so. We don't necessarily appreciate a, a wine itself unless there's a strong story behind it or there's a human being behind it. That seems to help a lot. So if I were a European producer, um, one of the things I would do is visit the U.S., find a distributor that was absolutely sympathetic to what I was trying to achieve. If, if I was farming biodynamically, for example, I'd find a distributor that really specialized in biodynamic wines. And then I would I would probably 
identify uh, just a couple of markets, two or three or four markets that were really key and focus on those markets and and really sort of let everything else kind of follow its natural course and, and really build a presence in some of the key markets, New York, Chicago, um, you know, if it's a, if it's a South American wine, maybe Miami would be a good a good place to start. Uh, really, yeah, you know, course, if you're doing yeah. a, a Spanish wine in Alberino, for example, I think Miami would be mm-hmm. would be great. Florida would be great. Um, and and just work on building a few markets rather than trying to conquer the whole the whole country. Great answer, excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if that doesn't give you <laughs> all the all the tools you need, uh, <laughs> wine for you in Rome. <laughs> I don't know what does. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I got those uh, some of the questions out, and there, there's a lot more, but I, I'm, there's a few questions I want to go back to that I have for you. So uh, to everyone that, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to your email questions, uh, you'll have to excuse me and pardon me on this particular show, but there's a lot of questions I want to get through with Randall. Um, and Randall, I'm going to put this out there. Hopefully, I may get back, you back for a second show because I probably need a week's worth of shows just to get through all the questions I have and <laughs> And, and, and uh, frankly, the questions that I have from uh, from people who've emailed them in from all over the world. So, you have I have to tell you, you have um, produced of my guests the most questions I have ever seen from email questions. Unbelievable. Um, all right, so let me go back to something that I have said personally myself, and I've done taste tests. I'm prefacing this question by telling you that when I worked in the retail end. Um, I had people who were snobs about screw caps. Yep. And, um, and what I would do purposefully is if I had a client come in who was, you know, bought an average bottle of wine would be on 40 to $50 and up, I would purposely take a good wine that I knew that uh, had a screw cap. And what I would do is I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm going to pour you two wines tonight. And I want you to try this one and I want you to try that one. Tell me what you think. And I would say at least eight out of ten times, they'd they pick the one with the screw cap and say, oh, geez, well, what wine was that? And I'd show it to them. They'd say, oh, my God, it's got a screw cap. But i said, well, you just tried it, and you liked it. I would, you should let your palate and your nose choose for you, not just your eyes, because the right. label and the, and the cap really do not go into your digestive system. <laughs> and right, they don't exactly. Smell. Exactly. So, if you smelled it and you liked it and you drank and you liked it, what, what bearing does the screw cap have? And I, I have to tell you, I have, had literally turned around so many people, endless, countless amounts of people who were you know, defiantly against screw caps. So my question, um, what is your thoughts on aging with screw caps? And of okay. course, you have to give the reduction issues and take them into consideration. And, and let let my listeners know your feelings on that. Okay, I've thank you very much, uh, Stu. This, this is I really thought about this quite a bit, and and I and honestly, I don't think as, as you said, wine tasting is a is a is a journey, and and wine making is a journey too. And so I I don't know that I've completely exhausted the subject, but at least for now, I am very confident that screw caps uh, are a brilliant way of of closing. Uh, a bottle of wine, sealing a bottle of wine, they do behave differently than corks. Um, the wine goes through a slightly different evolution. It, the wine is more backward in its youth in general. Um, you have to make some small compensations in your winemaking to to accommodate that if you're if you're going to release the wine uh, earlier. Um, all things being equal, and they never are, but Generally, I would suggest that wines sealed with a screw cap will live much longer than wines with a cork. I would estimate about 50% longer uh, as an approximate as an approximate value. But they but they go as I said they go through a different maturation. They're backward, and but they ultimately will be fresher um, and more complex. The analogy that I make is: imagine a bottle of uh, two bottles of wine, uh, 750. And a double magnum. When you try the same wine, the double magnum will always be a more interesting wine. It'll be more complex. It'll be fresher. Uh, it will. It will always be the more interesting wine. Because um, of the oxidization and the amount of air inside, sure. Yeah, it's just it's just developing at a much slower rate. Anything you can do that slows down the maturation of wine, whether it's a cool cellar 
or in a larger bottle or just less oxygen permeation is ultimately going to redound to a more complex wine when you ultimately open it. But as I said, you know, as you, or you suggested, wines with screw caps can be or can be more backward when they're young, and they, therefore they, they need to be handled differently at table. When you open the wine, they often are, are closed. They can be even a little reduced, a little stinky. I would always recommend um, uh, decanting wines that are bottled in, that, that come in screw caps. You know, having Absolutely. said that, having said that, um, I would suggest that virtually every great wine, whether it's sealed in a cork or in a screw cap, will be backward in its youth. Um, you drink you drink some of the O5 Burgundies and the O6 Burgundies, red Burgundies now, and it's sealed with a cork. They're backward. They're dumb. I mean, they're and some of them are just stinky. They're, and this is actually not a bad thing. This is actually an indication that there's life uh, in the wine, and uh, and and it bodes for a very long life. It's kind of a little bit like a colicky baby. Um, you know, this, this baby's going to be brilliant if you don't strangle it first. You know. <laughs> Uh, I lo- you know what? There should be randalisms. You know what I mean? Like you should put out a book of just randalisms. You have some of the best analogies I have I have ever heard of. No, of anybody. I was going to say of just people in the wine world, but you know, actually, it really transcends that. I think it goes way past that. Very, very interesting. I, you know what? Um, no one can ever say you're not entertaining. You are extremely entertaining. Um, so now okay. I'm going to go in a little bit of a di- different de- direction here. Sure. Um, I, I'm a I'm a musician. Uh, yep. I, I worked in the music. Anyone that knows me and uh, that's talked with me before, I, I worked in the music industry for many, many years. Uh, and the thing that I like about what you do with your uh, vineyard and your winery and your wines is that you make a connection with music. You mix music with wine. So for yep. your for your events. So how did you come about that? Because you, you know what, I think a lot of people in the wine industry came to that much later on and saw the benefit and the value. So I wanted to ask, you know, what was your vision? How did you think to to do that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So could, you, could you say that again, please? Okay. So you, I was saying you mix music with your, you know yep. your events with your. Yep. So how did you come about doing that? Because a lot of people came about that really late in, in the wine industry and it's a, you know, you obviously saw the value of that, but just explain to my listeners about that idea. Well, I mean, we're, you know, if, if you're an, an aesthete, I mean, if you like complexity, you like complexity and everything and you, you enjoy, um, you know, if you're, an, if you're an artist of some sort, I think every artist has some level of synesthesia in them and they just enjoy transposing uh, these elements, whether it's music or, or visual elements, um, and so I, I love music. I'm I'm not a skilled musician. My my whole family is musical, but I'm not. Uh, I do appreciate it though, and um, it's been incredible fun doing doing these musical events at the winery. We just uh, we're just going nuts. I mean, I I'm such a disorganized person, but when I get more organized, I really would like to play more music to to our grapevines, play more music to the wines themselves. I mean, I think there are, I mean, I, I'm not a new agey person particularly, but there's a part of me that really believes that um, sound uh, actually does have, can have an influence on other other elements. So I, I want to be open to that at least. So uh, if, you know, I, it drives me crazy. Some of my cellar workers play the most, awful music in the cellar and they, they of course immediately turn it off when they when they see me in the cellar but uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that wine does respond to the, to the music that, that it hears. That's great. That, that's, uh, I like the connection there. Well, I'm going to have to say this. we got only uh, literally a minute left so I want to thank you personally uh, for coming on the show and I hope I'm going to get a chance to have you on again so there's a lot more questions I want to ask. Um, I, like, I want to thank all the people who called in as well as who emailed in their questions and, of course, in the chat room had participated as well. Um, as always, if you have any questions about the show, you can email me them at info at or about Randall. You can go to the, his website at www.bonniedunevineyard.com or go to Bin Dune So Long about the book. Um, let's see. You can also go to my website, www.stewthewineguru.com, and click the link for all my wine articles, videos, and listen to the archived wine talk shows. As always, as I say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stu the Wine Guru. Drink up. Good night and good wine. And Randall, 
You are a gentleman and a scholar, and <laughs> I have to have you on again. Please say you'll come on at another time. Be, be my great pleasure. Oh, fantastic. I got it. Thank you again, and uh, good night to everybody, and enjoy your wines. Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru.